Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Well, happy Valentine's Day. Men, don't be a Jerry. It's a great video. If you're single today, it can be an emotionally challenging day. Maybe you want to be in a relationship, but you're not. Or maybe you've recently lost a loved one. But this day doesn't just have to be about romantic love. I'm sure that you've got friends in your life that love and care about you and vice versa. So maybe you hop on to Instagram or Facebook today and just tag a friend and tell them one thing you love about them. And if you're watching or maybe listening later in the week, my name's Rob. I get to serve here as the pastor. And guys, I want you to know it's not a Hallmark holiday. So if you've already made up your mind to say, oh, we're not going to do anything for Valentine's Day. Men, I've I've got a plan. I want to help you out. I want to help you set the romantic mood this evening. Uh, I put together a little bit of a playlist of some great love songs for you to consider. Let's see if you can spot them here. Now, this is an oldie, but it's a goodie. You've probably heard it before. It's in a very popular film, Unchained Melody by The Righteous Brothers. Now, with a name like this, they've got to be, you know, God-fearing folk, right? The Righteous Brothers. That's a dad joke. Here's another one. It's an oldie, but goodie. You know, I'm a greater fan of Hound Dog Elvis than Vegas Elvis, but Can't Help Falling in Love with You by Elvis Presley. Now, this next one is an all-time classic, you know, big part of being a 90s kid. Let's see if you can spot it here. Now, you got to wait for the special moment. Towards the end of the song, everything fades out, and then it happens. Yes, that, that drum, here it comes, there's that hit. And then the arms go up, we just wave, and we just enjoy the moment. Thank you, Whitney. Now, some of you would say, oh, it's not a Whitney Houston song. That's a Dolly Parton song. That's fair. It's still a classic, uh, all-time great romantic love song. Uh, This this last one here is uh, by The Temptations. You're probably familiar with it. As I say, The Temptations, great Motown group. You're probably singing the song in your head right now. Here it is. Not the one you had in mind, right? War by the Temptations. I at least hope you chuckled a little bit, and here's why. We need to laugh today, because today's a little bit of a challenging conversation. Today's going to take courage, and it's going to take humility. You know, humility says, you know what? Maybe I don't have it all figured out. Maybe there's some things that I still have to learn. Humility says, I could be wrong. Courage says, you know what? I'm committed to the truth. Wherever the truth takes me, that's where I want to be. Humility and courage. Now, let me read to you the lyrics of this song one more time by the temptations. War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Listen to me, war. It ain't nothing but a heartbreaker. War, friend only to the undertaker. War. 
Here's a question for us to consider as we begin our conversation today. What percentage of wars would you say were religiously motivated? If you're following along in the chat today, uh, maybe you might throw it in there. Or if you're watching with someone at home or wherever you are, if you're driving in the car, listening to the podcast, you might turn to someone. Answer me this. How many of you would say that 50% or more of wars in history were religiously motivated? Now, Philip and Axelrod chronicled the history of wars in a three-volume encyclopedia. And you know what they found? Only 7% of wars were religiously motivated. And even more fascinating is that if we remove Islam from the mix, that number drops to 3.23%. And so they would say that the number one cause for human suffering in the 20th century is political ideology. And I want to read some heartbreaking stats. These are deaths at the hand of non-religious atheist political leaders throughout the 20th century. Joseph Stalin was responsible for 42.6 million deaths. Mao Zedong, 37.8 million deaths. Adolf Hitler, Hitler, 20.9 million deaths. Vladimir Lenin, 4 million deaths. Hideki Tojo, 3.9 million deaths. Now, if you've wandered into this message, you're thinking, this does not sound like a Valentine's Day friendly type of message. What is happening? Now, this is part two of a series that we kicked off last week. And so let me give you a little bit of context in what we're talking about here. If you missed it, I'll get you caught up quickly. This is the series called Citizen. We're talking about what do we do when loyalties collide? And this series is not designed to help us become more political in our thinking. This series is designed to help us become more biblical in our thinking. Our thesis is that citizens from God's kingdom are from every nation and should be good citizens in any nation. But the tension that we must all embrace is that when it comes to biblical Christianity, biblical Christianity does not align perfectly with any political ideology or worldview or belief system or any one political party or ideology. So how do we respond then when our loyalty as citizens of this nation collide with our citizenship in God's kingdom? What's our response? And so for those that are watching today and you would say, hey, the scriptures are my authority, the 66 books that we call the Bible, that's how I live my life. That is the filter for my decision-making. My ask for you today and next week is to remember a commitment that I asked you to consider last week. And it's this, that before we engage politically, we will think biblically. In the same way that you drive along the highway or freeway and there's guardrails to keep you from going off course, that's what this is here for. That before I engage politically, I'm going to make this commitment to think biblically. And if you're watching today, hey, the Bible's not my authority. I'm still trying to figure out where I'm at with Jesus. We're glad that you're here. Here's something that you and I can commit to. What if we did this? We looked for commonalities before exposing differences. We want to avoid the conversational jump rope where we're looking and as soon as we find that one thing that we're against or that hot item, we jump in and say, boom, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated. And we blow up the conversation and shut it down. We want to avoid that. Look for commonalities before exposing differences. You ready? Let's dive in. Years ago, Jesus made a profound statement. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those 
who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Is that what you're thinking about this Valentine's Day with your enemy? You're going to send them a, a box of chocolates. You got flowers coming to their door with a little note that says, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. Happy, Valentine, happy Valentine's Day. I'm fed up with you. You know, when I went to the card section to get my wife a card for Valentine's Day, you know what didn't exist? The section for my enemy. Not a huge market for sending cards to our enemies uh, this Valentine's Day. So for the purpose of everyone getting on the same page, I want to define this term here, enemies. You know, when Jesus says to love our enemy, what's he talking about? Number one, um, our enemy is not someone that is opposed to our narrative. So listen, in high school, you were pro sync or you were pro Backstreet Boys. Those were two different groups. You could not be in both camps. If you're into comics, you know there's DC and there's Marvel. Growing up, we had Sesame Street and we had the Muppet Babies, but those are rivalries. We can do life with people that have different preferences and different desires, but that does not make us an enemy. Our enemy is not someone that is opposed to our narrative. Our enemy is not someone that is opposed to our belief. Is it possible for me to have a conversation with an atheist or someone that's agnostic or a Buddhism or a Buddhist or a Muslim over a cup of coffee and say, hey, we part ways on this? Yes, it's absolutely possible. And that person is not my enemy. Hear this. Christianity is offensive, but that doesn't mean that we have to be offensive Christians. I said this last week, that the statement, Jesus is my king, that's a political statement. In the same way that there are things in the pages of the Old Testament and New Testament that have a different way of life, uh, that, that have, us have a different way of life and how we follow God and honor him with the scriptures. And so as we do life with people, an example of this that might be you know, an example of what makes Christianity offensive is the conversation around gender. You know, in Genesis, God says, listen, God made man male and he made man female. And God's the one that determines our gender. Now, we do live with people that would say, I disagree. You know, I would say that we get to make that decision. And therefore, Christianity is, you know, offensive. But that doesn't mean our response needs to be offensive to other people. And I was living in California. I had family that lived in Northern California. So I would go up to San Francisco and we would walk around uh, the marketplace there. And I was a new believer. And I remember people in the name of Jesus with megaphones. And I remember people in the name of Jesus with the uh, poster boards. And they would point out people that would say, hey, you know, I determine my gender. And I determine who I want to love and who I want to marry. And that's on my decision, not the Bible. And they would yell out things like, you're an abomination. You are detestable. I got to tell you, no one was stopping to have a conversation with those people saying, yeah, tell me more about this, Jesus. And yet, that's the brand of Christianity that the media loves to share. Yes, Christianity is offensive, but that does not mean that we need to be offensive Christians. Now, our enemy is not someone that is opposed to our belief, and our enemy is not someone who is opposed to our comfort. When my wife and I were dated, she had a uh, 2002 Toyota Camry, and I had a 1972 Chevy Cheyenne. It did not have a heating and cooling system, and so when we would go out on dates, we drove her vehicle. 
She wanted the inside of the vehicle like a sauna, and I wanted it to be a cryotherapy chamber. <laughs> I loved it frigid and cold, northeaster, northeast guy, California girl. There was conflict. I would say at times she was opposed to my well-being, but more she was opposed to my comfort. That didn't make her an enemy. Here's the deal. Our enemy is anyone who is opposed to our well-being. And as I read this definition, for some people that brings clarity. For some people that brings about greater questions. Because some would say, I hear you. Okay, that's who my enemy is. But when I think about Jesus' statement and loving my enemy, here's a tension that I have. I want to share some of the questions that I have been asked as a pastor, as a friend, as a son, as a brother, uh, as a Christian, and as a pastor. What would Jesus say about my enemy when it comes to war? Can a Christian serve in law enforcement or the armed forces while still being obedient to the command that Jesus said, love our enemy? Given what what Jesus said about loving our enemy, is it permissible even for a Christian to own a gun and to to fire it, to use it in self-defense? You know, how can a Christian be okay with the death penalty? You know, these are hard questions. And in the year AD 56, Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians living under the authority of one of the most powerful governments in any civilization. Christians were enemies of the state, and Christians were violently abused because of their beliefs. And people that they loved were violently abused because of their beliefs. And Paul himself, at one point, supported violence and forced and imposed upon Christians because of their love for Jesus. And yet, years later, the Apostle Paul would find himself an enemy of Rome, writing on the subjects of violence, revenge, enemies, war, and government. And here's what he said. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants Agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And if, if all I did was read this one verse today, someone like Richard Dawkins might say, oh, this is my point, that this is why I would say that religion is the cause of pain and hurt and suffering and war. Here it is. But this is not all Paul said. Context is king. I want to read what he said just a couple of verses before this. And as I read it, what I want to invite you to do is to visualize your enemy. Maybe it's a political leader. You're convinced they are opposed to your well-being. Maybe it's an activist group. You're convinced that they are opposed to your well-being. Maybe it's a former spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, co-worker, or boss. Who is that person that you're convinced is opposed to your well-being? Where are you taking them for dinner tonight, (laughs) right? Uh, You're probably not, but I want you to visualize that person as I read these words. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Is that what you're thinking about your enemy? Bless them, Father. I just hope the greatest things happen to them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Yep, Paul, I can do that. Mourn with those who mourn. I can do that. Live in harmony with one another. That is a little bit challenging, but doable. 
hard, not destructible hard. Do not be proud. Okay, now you're poking the bear a little bit, Paul. But be willing to associate with people of low position. Hmm. And then he says, do not be conceited. So Paul is talking about, you need to get this down, deal with pride, because what I say next is going to really challenge you. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Does everyone include my enemy? Yes, it does. If it is possible, I'm going to say that one more time. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, you've got ownership in this, live at peace with everyone. Excuse me. Everyone including my enemy? Yes. Everyone including your enemy. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. Whose is it? God's. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. How many of you are sending pizza to your enemy's house, right? Hey, this meal's on me. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Hey, I'm going to send you a Starbucks card today just to love you. Just want to bless you. No, probably not. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a little weird. I'm going to explain that. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is where Christianity gets real. Where we move beyond the classroom. Where we move beyond the sermon and into real life. If I take what Paul's saying in chapter 12, and if I take what he's saying in chapter 13, here's a simple summary statement. Pursue peace with our enemies as citizens of God's kingdom. This is what it looks like as individuals day to day. And at the same time, we've got rights as citizens of this nation. So we're going to trust God's authority over the state to execute punishment. And at this point, you should be saying to yourself, that's easier said than done, because you're right. This is going to require choosing what you, uh, choosing what you trust over how you feel. In the 1970s, the Peace Corps uh, came up with an instruction manual on how to survive an anaconda attack. <laughs> And what they say is that when you're face-to-face with an anaconda, don't run. No, 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 no. Instead, what you should do is crawl down in a fetal position, just like this. And you're going to crawl up. And as the anaconda begins to devour you, you're going to take your knife out. And you want to take your knife at the edge of its mouth and rip up and towards you to sever the head of the anaconda. Now, listen, this goes against everything that you instinctively are feeling at the moment. It requires choosing what you trust to be true. Now, I don't know how true that story is, but what I do, but what I do know, having lived in Utah, and this recently happened to someone that was on one of the trails, uh, that mountain lions you know, you could come in contact with mountain lions. Someone did. Mama, mama was there with her cubs, and it was the middle of the day. She felt threatened, and she went out to attack. You can actually find this on YouTube. Mountain lion attack, Utah. You can watch it this week. But this guy, uh, he's, he thinks he's done for. And so, you know, the 
training manual is don't lose eye contact, remain large, and make a lot of noise if you want to survive. Again, it in going against everything instinctively that you're feeling and trusting what you know over what you feel. And that's what it's going to take today if we're going to take the words of the Apostle Paul seriously. In chapter 12 and chapter 13, if we're going to pursue peace with our enemies as citizens of God's kingdom and still trust God's authority over the state to execute punishment as citizens of this nation, it's going to require choosing to trust what we know over what we feel. Now, Paul writes, Do not do this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but do this. Be careful to... Do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Does that include my enemy? Yes. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Does that include my enemy? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but do this. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. To put this into practice, it requires pre-decision. Living with vision requires pre-decision. I'm going to pre-decide what I'm going to do before it even happens. If I'm going to resist the, the feeling inside and my instinct, which is when someone hurts me, when someone wrongs me, when someone commits evil against me, my instinct says, I'm going to make you hurt because you hurt me. Okay, what Paul's suggesting is the opposite. Do not take revenge. You know, when I was a youth pastor, there was a, uh, the head of the student ministry position had, had opened up and I, there was, you know, the, the, the one that was in the position left and I was all excited to apply for the position. I had uh, lunch with, a, with someone that I had served on staff with. I had all my ideas that I'm excited about, only to come to find out that he was taking the position. And that he was going to be my boss. Everything instinctively was, this is wrong. This is such an injustice. Everything I felt was horrible. I can't believe this is happening. I'm a, we're in ministry. God put me in a position where I had to learn how to serve someone that had wronged me or hurt me. And I had to learn to trust, okay, this is what God wants. This is who he has for the position. So when Paul quotes this proverb, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. It's an Old Testament proverb. If you were to do this, you would kill your enemy. So instead, what Paul's saying is, listen, if you want to destroy your enemy, make them your friend. If you want to destroy your enemy, serve them in modern day you know, vernacular, <laughs> kill them with kindness. That's what Paul's saying. But then he drops the hammer. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is where Christianity becomes incredibly real. There are some questions that I've been asked recently, and it it's the tension of, okay, I see this as a citizen of God's kingdom, but what about as a citizen of this nation? Some questions, you know, pastor, what would you say to someone that felt all of the actions of those at the Capitol 
on January 6th were justified. You know, Pastor, that there were Christians there that, that said that they were doing the right thing. Or, Pastor, what would you say about some of the uh, actions that, of those that were destructive protesters uh, over the summer that felt like their actions were, were justified and even within the Constitution? And on the opposite side, you know, some would say, what, what would you say to those that would be quick to point out that we'd all be speaking German if it were not for the intervention of others. It seems appropriate that there are times to intervene and act. And if I, you know, talking with someone that is a Christ follower, I'm going to say, hey, listen, you know, the, the scriptures are authority, so I want to start there. If, if someone's not, then I want to say, well, I have a different conversation because I'm not going to hold them accountable to what I believe. With them, I'm talking more about constitutional rights, but for the sake of today's conversation, I'm going to talk about what do we do with the rights of us, the rights that are protected under the Constitution, and then the, the instructions of God's Word as a, as a Christ follower. And so what I want to do is I want to start with Romans 13.4, and I want to say, hey, for the one that's in authority, they're there as God's servant. What's the word here? For our good. And some will be quick to say, listen, I don't trust government. I'm going to talk more about this next week. But God establishes government for our benefit. But here's what happened after Paul penned these words. Christians began to take positions of authority because as the gospel spread and more and more people came to know Jesus, you know, over time, Christians would step into military. Over time, Christians would step into government positions and then they would find themselves stuck like, okay, loving my enemy as a citizen of God's kingdom and yet I have a position now in which uh, there's rights of citizens that I am sworn into protecting. And so how do we live with that tension? And for some, they would go to pacifism and they would say, listen, you know, violence is, is always horrible and and we should be horrified at the act of any violence. And for those that, that hold this position, they've probably, inf and probably been influenced by a passage in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, that's often quoted, turn the other cheek. And here's what Jesus said. Uh, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. So, Jesus is speaking to a culture that's predominantly right-handed. Uh, they use their right hand socially. And so the context is a response to public shaming. That's the context here. Think about how would you slap uh, someone on the right side of the face if you're right-handed? You'd have to you know, do one of those maneuvers. And at this point, you know, you're acting out all the things that you've learned on Cobra Kai, you know, the Karate Kid series on YouTube, like... I learned this move here. No, I mean, it's foolish, and people would, would laugh at you. Jesus wasn't addressing violence or war. He was addressing shame. Now, another group of people here in this conversation, would those that would say, what about preemptive war? And the notion that, you know, I want to get them before they get us. Around Memorial Day and Veterans Day, most churches uh, in our country will throw up a verse like this. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. But this is not a military reference. This is a reference to what Jesus does on the cross. And that on the cross, it, it was an act of violence. And God's wrath was poured upon 
Christ's shoulders. Uh, He served as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of humanity. His blood was shed, atoning for our sins, past, present, and future. And all of this took place. So for those that were once enemies of God, that they were not on the same team with God, that they were opposed to God, would become friends through Christ Jesus. And that God would see us as Christ followers the same way that he sees Jesus, one that knows no sin. So this is what's taking place, that Jesus willingly served his enemies so that we wouldn't be enemies of God, we would be friends. We would be new creations with new freedom. That's what this verse is saying. Now, a third perspective here is something that's known as just war theory. And so as Christians stepped into positions of power over time, uh, great Christian thinkers like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas developed something and really implemented something known as just war theory, where there are times where violent acts or acts of war are permissible under the following circumstances. They would say, hey, is there just cause? Uh, Has another country wrongly taken another nation's resources? That's just cause. One country, uh, do they need to be held accountable for acts of evil? That's just cause. An example of this is in the 90s when the Hutus slaughtered 800,000 Tutsis. You know, that was, uh, you know, uh, just cause. You know, one country is being held accountable for acts of of evil. Uh, Is there a right intention? You know, the right intention is the avoidance of evil intentions. So are we going in to help out and secure peace and kick out the oppressors uh, because it's really what's best for them? Or is there something in it for us too? Are we going to take some resources while we're there? We need to have the right intention. My brother's a a cop and he's in law enforcement. And the reason why I'm so excited that he has chosen to serve this way is that he serves. That's what he's, I'm here to serve the community. I'm a public servant. I'm here to help citizens. It's serving with the right intention. The third is, is it the last resort? Have all other acceptable means of addressing the injustice that's taking place been exhausted? You know, whether it's the acts of what took place over the summer and in the fall, or what took place last month at the Capitol, if I'm speaking with a Christ follower, that's my filter. Okay. If you feel it's justified, is there just cause? Is there right intention? Is this the last resort? And at the end, remember Romans 13, 4, first verse here, for those in authority is God's servant for whose good? For our good. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But here's a simple summary statement. When it comes to violence, I think if we take what the pages of, of the New Testament say here, I think we could, we could all agree that violence is always horrible. And sometimes unavoidable. And when I when you say, wait a minute, violence? What about necessary force and self-defense? Okay, I hear you. But in our culture today, this is how we use this word violence. If you were to look at movies, uh, movie ratings or video game ratings of things like you know, military, uh, war movies or war games or um, movies about law enforcement and when they're using their weapons and people's lives are being taken, the word that they've chosen is violence, excessive violence. Violence, And so it's anytime we fire a weapon and harm someone, whether it's self-defense or not, it's still violence. And, and the point here is that violence is always horrible, but at the, other, at the same time, it's sometimes it's, it's unavoidable. When I was living in Bakersfield, California, uh, in my early 20s, late at night to about 1030, you know, at night someone's banging on the door and I'm thinking, Who, what is going on? 
And I opened up the door and we had a metal screen and it was locked and they couldn't see, but this person was out of their mind. This is my house, let me in. I'm sorry, ma'am, you've got the wrong house. Close the door. She goes around the house and she comes back inside and right point, she's in the living room. It's clearly not of her right mind and she has a knife in her hand and she's making a scene and my my cousin comes around the corner, sees what's happening. He gets the gun that he legally owned and he's got a gun out and he's telling her to leave. And then my grandmother wakes up in the middle of the night and she's like, oh gosh, what is happening? And I'm thinking, this is horrible. I mean, what if she grabs my grandmother? What if my, my, my cousin needs to fire the weapon? So of course we've called the police. Law enforcement shows up and they take care of the situation. It didn't get violent, but it could have. I got to be honest, if that was today with my own kids and would I be okay with the use of violence for the protection of my own children? Absolutely. Violence is always horrible, but sometimes it's unavoidable. So what Paul's saying here is to the best of our ability, to the best of our ability is if it's possible, pursue peace with everyone. Pursue peace with our enemies as citizens of God's kingdom. And we want to ultimately trust God's authority over the state to execute punishment as citizens of this nation. We want to trust the people and practices that God has put into place. Is it perfect? No. We're going to talk about that next week and we'll deal with that tension. But I want to close with this. In the year 205, an epidemic had began to take place in Rome. And in fact, it was so bad that in one day over 5,000 people were killed. And you, if you were to you know, explore the Roman Empire and the scene in this, in this season, I mean, bodies are piled you know, in the streets. Many people are, are dying and, and the people in power are crying out to their gods and nothing's changing. And so they feel as though they're being punished. And then they assess, wait a minute, you know who's not crying out to our gods? The Christians. And so so the gods that be, they must not be resolving this problem and, and helping this go away because they're not crying out to the gods, sacrificing to the gods. So listen, we're going to tell the Christians, you need to do this or we're going to execute you. And so one great Christian leader says, no, we're not going to do that because we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. But here's what we are going to do. We are going to raise up money and funds to serve those that are sick and suffering. We're going to clear out the bodies in the streets. Many Christians lost their lives because of infection or execution. Some died because of getting sick. Others were killed because they would not sacrifice to the gods because they pledged allegiance to King Jesus, but they died serving their enemy. And historians, scholars that aren't Christ followers, they don't have any skin in the game when it comes to religion, have documented that this was a great catalyst for the early church. The many Christians would come to know Jesus because people leaned in and said, what is it about this Jesus that people would willingly die serving their enemies? Can you imagine the impact that the Christians today could have in our church as we have so much conflict politically around us where we feel like there are people that are opposed to our well-being if we took the posture and saying, listen, I pledge my allegiance to King Jesus, but I'm going to serve those who are opposed to my well-being. I'm going to love them, bless them, pray for them. Can you imagine the impact that the church would have today? Don't miss this. Hear this. There will always be an anaconda in your life. And the only solution is surrender. There's always going to be an enemy. I mean, it's not if you have enemies, it's love your enemy. Because 
the assumption is we are going to have that person or entity that is opposed to our well-being. And the only solution is surrender. Not surrender to our enemy, but surrender to our King, King Jesus. You see, as I read the New Testament, the more that we're aligned with Jesus, the less that we're aligned to political parties or ideology. So enemies are going to be made along the way because Christianity is offensive, but we don't need to be offensive Christians. We can serve, we can pray for those that persecute us, that, that hold different worldviews, that are, that are not for us, that maybe are against us. And I get it. That goes against everything that we feel. So instead, we need to trust what we know to be true. And here's what I know to be true. That God is love. He is love. And God is also just. And so I'm going to trust him with the outcomes when it comes to loving my enemy. There will always be an anaconda in your life. And the only solution is surrender. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word and truth today. It has been challenging me all week. But I appreciate that under the influence of, of the Holy Spirit, God, uh, the Apostle Paul has given us this blueprint, this game plan for how to love people well. And I thank you for the, the men and women that have gone before us and served as this example of, of serving those that are opposed to our well-being killing them with kindness, making them our friend, feeding them, serving them, ministering to them. God, would you, would you challenge us? I mean, what does that look like for us today in our own lives? How can we make that type of, of impact in our community where people are saying, that type of love just doesn't make sense. There must be something else happening there. And that something else is not a something, but it's you, it's a someone, it's your son, Christ Jesus, God. I pray for those that in this day where singleness can be so hard that you would be with them, encourage them. Um, pray that you put up friends in their life in this day. Um, but for the rest of us, as we continue to navigate this incredibly challenging time, Lord, help us to remember where our allegiance lies when our loyalties collide. And that's with you. We pray these things in your son Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you for, for being a part of our service today. We're going to sing one more song together and worship. Let's do that now. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the ministry of Eastern Hills, click the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.